OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Well, Nikhil, we're, uh, we like to just jump right into things and we're right at that right now. So welcome to Supporters Fund Ask an Angel. I'm your host, Jeffrey Poppin. Let's welcome our investor for today, Nikhil. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey, for inviting me today. It's an honor and a pleasure. Uh, I've seen you working from when the fund was that small, uh, or maybe there, was, there wasn't even a fund. We were just members. I, I met you. I used to meet you at York Angels. And I think from that seed, no pun intended, it has become a big tree, it seems, right? So, so congratulations to you and your team. Hard work. Thank you. Yeah, we, uh, we do uh, love what we do, so it makes a big difference. Absolutely. There's nothing like something that you love to work for, right? Agreed. Gets you going every day. Yeah. Well, I'm yeah. glad that we're able, we're able to connect and chat. And I know we've had many, many conversations today. We're going to have one a lot more specific around early stage investing in debt and all these good things. But before we jump into that, uh, I'm hoping you can give us a little bit of a background on yourself, kind of where you've come from, from running operations to Russian companies all the way through to uh, where you've been for the last nine years. I think it's been nine years. Feels like it's been nine years at R&D. So yeah, yeah. I'll, yeah. Uh, I'll turn it over to you to kind Lord, of- uh, Where did you get these Russian operations? I, I omitted that from a LinkedIn profile, but you got it. <laughs> Well, to be honest, um, after I did my MBA in India, I joined, I had this opportunity to move to Russia. Um, and that was, a, I was very young. It was a fantastic opportunity. And I jumped on that. I said, listen, um, if I don't take this opportunity right now, uh, it's, it's now or never, right? So, and Russia at that time was opening up. Uh, this was 95, 96. So I'm aging myself out there. Uh, young, a young person just out of, uh, of uh, out of my MBA, and I take this opportunity to work with Cadbury's. So I hop on this plane, go to Russia, take this opportunity, work in this exciting, exciting, growing market in Moscow, and in other parts of Russia. Uh, so I worked with Cadbury's for a couple of years, and then later on I jumped and started working with Levi's. Uh, Levi Strauss with the jeans company. I worked there for another five, six years. Uh, and that made me travel. Uh, that gave me an opportunity to travel all over Europe uh, and see each and every part of Russia. So, I, you know, I was, uh, I traveled to Vladivostok, which is on the side of, you know, near Japan, to Kaliningrad, which is, uh, which is near Sweden and all the Baltics and up in Murmansk, which just meets Norway, Sweden, and Russia meets together. So fantastic stuff. I was involved in development of the products, uh, sales of those products, uh, and it was a fantastic opportunity. I mean, uh, a young person couldn't ask for more, right? And that gave me an opportunity to learn different languages. I'm very fluent in Russian. Um, and, uh, uh, I, and that gave me the opportunity to learn a lot of languages. So when I travel to Europe, I'm more or less okay, right? Uh, so after that, we decided, me and along with my wife, we decided to immigrate to Russia, uh, to, to Canada, sorry. And that's how, um, that's how I came out here, 
in Canada. And I think um, this was the best step that we ever took as a family, right? So my wife um, started on this path to become a, a doctor. She became a naturopathic doctor. And I was involved in sales for the next five, six years. I uh, worked with Staples, Acklands Granger, and Yellow Pages. And then I decided, listen, um, it's, it's funny why I got in finance, okay? When I was doing my MBA, I didn't get good grades in my finance subjects. And I thought that I was strong in finance, and yet I didn't get good grades. So I wanted to take a revenge on those professors. And that's why I did my CPA. Um, I said, I, you know, I love finance. Um, and uh, and uh, so I did my CPA. And that's how I, and as part of my project, I was involved with R&D Capital, which is the company that I've worked for right now for the last eight years now. And they are the ones who signed off on my CPA. So I'm ever thankful to them. <laughs> you know, somebody somebody has to sign off on that you have the requisite work experience and everything, right? And um, and I've been there with them for the last eight years. Fantastic journey. Um, as you know, R&D Capital, it's one of the biggest companies doing shred financing. Uh, we structure 250 deals a year. And... Uh, so that has been a journey from, and didn't that, I mean, I should have told you that I was an engineer by training. So there was a slight uh, engineering bent of mind always. And, and then into sales, uh, speaking different languages, and then, and then uh, um, CPA and uh, finance. So that worked out pretty well when you're working with, uh, with companies, right? You understand the technical aspect as well as the financial aspects of the company. So that has been a journey in short. It's amazing. And uh, I'm not sure it's a short journey. I think you've got a lot more to go and that's pretty exciting on what you've accomplished today. Oh, thank you. Uh, there's more to accomplish as we move forward. There's so much things happening. As you know, Jeffrey, uh, Jeff, uh, it's an exciting, we live in exciting times. You know, there's so much to accomplish, so much to do. Um, uh, some people, I mean, in the sense, in, despite the pandemic, I should say, despite the, the sad news we have, despite the fact that we are locked in homes uh, for so long a time, I think, I think we can look at the future with a level of optimism. Um, always believe that there's always a silver lining in the dark clouds that are always there, right? So I like it. It's fantastic, and optimism is the best way to go. I'm uh, you die without optimism, they say. I agree, I agree. So, I want to well, before I have to ask this question, just because I ask it in every instance of, uh, of the events and the talks that we do have, what's what is um, one thing about you that nobody would know after all the things you shared? What's one thing about you no one would know? Yeah, my love for quantum mechanics. All right, all yeah. right. Yeah, nobody would know that, but um, I don't understand it. And yet, uh, that's that's just uh, that's most of the time. If I have some time that I need to spend, I spend on that trying to learn as much as possible about uh, quantum theory and quantum mechanics. But I can I can can tell you something. I don't understand even after going through it, uh, spending so many hours. So so don't ask me what it is and how it works and everything. It's just that I think I love it. And yet I don't understand it. All right, well, I'll hold the questions off on quantum mechanics then till uh, 
later time, but I'm also a fan, so uh, I can understand why you like it. There is so many interesting parts to it uh, from all computing, speed, power, everything else that can go into this space. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I have a few books out here. Uh, the one by Einstein is one of the best books that is there. Uh, obviously, it talks about Einstein and uh, discovery of uh, E is equal to MC square. Uh, but 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 I love quantum mechanics. But anyway, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. That's a good thing. It's good. Passion is good. Um, well, we can go back a little bit into your background, and and because it, I think it's it's quite fascinating that you've worked in such a broad um, market, which being Russia, especially, and it's an open market, opening market, and how much yeah. it's changed. And I always like to look back at the things that we've done in our past that helped shape our future. And you got into finance, you got into being a CPA and all of those things came from all the experiences that you have had over time. And I like that. Yeah. You're going back against your teachers and you're proving them wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think we were very similar when I was going through finance in high school, couldn't stand it, uh, got into <laughs> university and it just was easy. So I did it and did well. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of interesting. And yeah. maybe I didn't apply myself, but it's amazing how much the world works off of this. But when you go back into the Russia times, I'm sure there's a million stories. I'm super intrigued. I know that back in the 80s, everybody wanted Levi Strauss, pants, jeans. They're all about yeah. the denim. But you're obviously, that's before your time in this area. But when you were in Russia, what were the things that really caught your eye on this new emerging market? And what were you having to do to compete, but also to get the attention of the buyers? Because this is a pretty big segment. Uh, it's a country that's opening up, and I'm sure they weren't just peppering money everywhere. So what kind of were the things that you had to do to kind of really get yourself invested? You learned the language, which is huge. So you really went above and beyond. Yeah, I think uh, to start, uh, we were working with uh, with, uh, with, uh, with distributors and dealers, and, and they were speaking only Russian. And I had a translator with me, and I know that uh, sometimes she didn't translate it as well. I could feel it. So I said that, you know, I think I got to learn on uh, learn this language right away, right? So I took it upon myself. I didn't have a teacher. I just watched a lot of TV and uh, uh, tried talking to people all the time. So that's that's how I, I learned the language. I think understanding the nuances in a country which is different from where you come from is very important to build up those relationships, and that helped a lot. So that's one thing. Russia, as you know, had always had... Um, special liking to Levi Strauss because it being a rebel brand, right? So, so from that perspective, the brand, uh, the brand, uh, uh, people were very much aware of the brand at that point in time in Russia. I mean, you could talk to anybody and, uh, and it was sold as a premium. So if you go to Finland or if you go to uh, Sweden or you go to any of the other European countries, the, the jeans that used to sell at $55, uh, Levi's Russia would sell it at 85 because of the premium on the brand. So, so I think uh, the challenge was around when it came to Russian market is because how the Russian market was evolving, right? So, so, so initially there was no concept of branded stores, right? And uh, so, so we had to come in and 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 educate the dealers and distributors on the on the concept of branded stores, right? So we used to bring, we had a contract with the Swedish company, they used to bring 
the whole, uh, their own concept, the Levi's concept, and they started building those stores. So that was one. Second was around merchandising. Merchandising was a challenging thing in, in that part of the world at that time. Uh, when working with Cadbury's, I remember they used to put the bars upside down when you couldn't see it because it didn't really matter in the Soviet times whether you put it like this or like that, right? So uh, merchandising was another challenge that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, that's something that uh, we overcome. Uh, the third was the evolving regulations around space, uh, rules, what you can do and cannot do, where you can sell and you cannot sell. There was a lot of, one of the things that uh, that you have to, which I take from that is dealing with uncertainty on almost a daily basis, right? There were so many uncertain things. Uh, you could sell this here, you cannot sell it here. You can sell at this price, you cannot sell at this price. The dealer will work with you, the dealer will not work with you. Here's a mafia involved. Here's no mafia involved. You cannot sell. So, so the so the level of uncertainty that is there, and you almost had to deal on a on a on a day to day basis, right? And that is something that helped me a lot in terms of um, navigating an unstructured environment. And plus, add to the fact that you always had language challenges all over the place, right? So, so so that is something. So that is that, which is which is essentially navigating an uncertain environment, uh, navigating a new environment, right? With very less information that you may have about the situation, and yet coming at the end of the end of the process with uh, with a level of success, um, both in terms of branding, in terms of merchandising, in terms of sales, and all those kind of things. I think this is something that. I definitely carried over. And the fact that you're dealing with different people all the time, um, uh, your ability to deal with different types of people because I interacted not only with the, the Russians, but the Swedish, the Hungarians. Our office was in Brussels. Uh, my office initially from for the Moscow region was in, was in Switzerland. So dealing with the whole sort of people with different backgrounds, um, different way of different way they come at different problems solve the problems kind of thing and to work collaboratively and yet uh, produce some results at the end of the day is something that uh, that that experience definitely helped me a lot and it, and it sounds like you'd be going in there into an environment that is just opening up again you're taking all of the ways that they're doing and conducting business like you mentioned, mafia and other things. So you're actually trying to learn that process, which is how can I sell into you? How can I get you interested in my brand? And they're just putting roadblocks up after roadblocks because they're protecting their own domain while making sure that they're making money. So I'm sure there's a lot of nuances. And then you're coming in from uh, um, other cultures as well. And you're not just coming in from, say, a Canadian perspective. You're coming in from a Sweden side. Um uh, Denmark, like whatever the angles are. So you, you're yeah. almost fighting a million battles just to get them to have a conversation. Absolutely. And you would be surprised uh, if you sit in a meeting where you have uh, teams of Polish, Hungarian, Swedish, uh, British, and some French people uh, working for an American company, the amount of jokes that fly around <laughs> and the amount of 
I'm already thinking of a million. I'm, but yeah, I'm sure oh, you can't believe that. Yeah. Like you know, I as a as you know, I came from India. Of course, I was not I was not Canadian. I came from India, so I was I used to sit at the corner and and they used to just barb at each other all the time. It was uh, it's crazy, but but it also helps you understand where they're coming from, how they're coming from, and adjust your message and uh, and adjust your message and how you work with them. You're right. Instead, in, in, you gotta be you gotta have a nuanced, very nuanced approach working with all these people. And it was, and I think learning that new language would also have helped you in the sales side because people would see that you were trying, so they'd feel more interested in what you were doing because you 100%. actually made an effort, right? You're bang on on that. The you know the very fact that I tried when I first, uh, you know, uh, so so to tell you, I, I was talking to a distributor and I, I I was talking to him on the phone, and I said something in Russian which in my pronunciation sounded like a like a four letter word. Everybody looked back, and 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 you know uh, when I talked to a distributor, he said. When I talked to him later, hey, listen, I said something that sounded like really bad. I said, no, no, no. The fact that you tried is everything, right? Not many people try that, right? Not yeah. people even want to do that. And that that's brilliant. So, so yeah. So, so, uh, so yes, you're right in the sense that uh, uh, the fact that you know you try and try to come from their point of view and understand, try to understand them is a big plus. It, it, it is a big plus. No, I can see that even when I'm, uh, when I'm traveling through, if I know I'm going into a certain country where the language is different, I'll try to rehearse and practice as much as I can, as much as I feel awkward saying it because I know it's coming out wrong. Yeah. Uh, I think people appreciate that and they'll probably change into English and try to help you as best as they can. And, you know, it's a, it's a good way to communicate. And, and I think it puts you in the right stage and the right foot forward. So uh, kudos for learning that. Now you kick that and you're shifting your way through and you decide to come back. I believe it was to the U S before you came to Canada. Is that. No, is that I came to Canada uh, from Russia. Uh, no, I didn't go to U S I came to Canada because. Uh, was it a U.S. company you work for? Uh, uh, when I first came out here, no, I didn't work for U.S. company. I worked for, so uh, uh, once I came back here, I worked for, you know, some odd jobs like any other immigrant at that point in time. And then I joined uh, a small office supplies company called Office Central here in Richmond Hill in Markham. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, which is now a huge company now. Uh, but, uh, but I joined a small company and that gave me a jump. Uh, into Staples, uh, uh, I was managing uh, uh, GTA at that point in time, and later on, uh, I went to Atlas Granger, uh, which is another Canadian company, uh, which is now Granger now bought by Granger in the US. But yeah, oh, okay, Granger, that's the one the yeah. US based one. Yeah. Okay, yeah. very cool, awesome. So when you shifted into the Canadian domain. Uh, I'm assuming that the Canadian side might have been a few years a little bit more advanced, but now taking all this experience, all these things that you've gained, you work through Staples, you're working your business along. When did you start getting interested in startups? And did that come when you started working in the finance CPA debt side? Was that kind of the shift that started to get that startup bit, uh, flair or bug? Or when did that kind of happen? Yeah, uh, it's an interesting story. So I joined R&D Capital and that obviously uh, we do shred financing, which means that obviously most of them are startups that avail of the shred financing. 
But I wasn't so. In the years, you know, I, it was not until I was in Mars. And um, you have uh, Rudy. And there was a small, um, small, um, you know, I think a talk about angel investing or angel investors. Rudy was there, right? He was on the on the panel. I was the, sitting in the front, right? And I was listening to him. And at the end, he just came. I just talked to him a little bit about, you know, asking angel investor, what is it? This, that, all this kind of stuff. He gave me a card, says, York Angel, says, come and see me. We have a meeting this Thursday or Friday. I don't remember whether it was Thursday or Friday. And took upon myself, because I was, I was living in the market at the time, uh, I took upon myself to just go and check what it is, right? And I went to the first meeting. There were, you know, uh, there were a handful of people. It was not as big in 2015 or 2014, if I'm not mistaken. The number of members were very limited at the time. Um, I liked what I saw. I liked the people that I was meeting. We had common interest, uh, both otherwise and business-wise, right? I mean, uh, uh, we spoke a common language. Uh, everybody was interested in, in the startup doing well. Uh, you know, there was this commonality around and that interested me a lot and I, that piqued my interest okay but i didn't i didn't jump on the angel investing bandwagon uh that uh, right away uh, i mean didn't didn't yet right it took me it took me at least a year uh after meeting all those people within our group uh and also financing a lot of companies through my day job uh that i said this is fantastic you do, you know, I'm doing my business, right? Uh, and you meet such smart people, the founders, you come across such exciting ideas. Uh, you come across folks who have made a lot of money and um, interested in taking that part of the money that they made in, uh, and investing in the society. Uh, it, it, it to, to a certain extent, that was, that was amazing. That was amazing. You know, it hits you on a different level, right? In different layers, you know, you have people investing because they have earned money, they want to give back to society. Then you meet very intelligent people, both on the investor side as well as founder side. And, and you have network and connections, right? And that got me really interested into angel investing. And I started my um, path to angel investing uh, through York Angels. I love it. I'm a big fan of York Angels as well. I'm a member. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yourself. yeah. And, uh, but yeah, the, the, um, I, I'm sure we could kick some, some crazy stories uh, of different events and different angels I've pitched over the last 10, 15 years, been around them. And uh, I do find that when you find that group that you fit in or that you can have common ground with and share stories and feel part of, it makes a big difference because you all are looking at, can I make an investment in this company? And it's collectively all having that same desire and goals. Yeah. And, and I do think that that makes a big difference in that investment community versus being yourself, trying to decide if it's a good fit. Absolutely. Uh, you're 100% right on that, 100% right on that. And of all the things I believe that if, of all the things that you can do with angel investing, uh, one of the things that really motivates me, if I have earned some money, I have some, some net worth, 
part of the network that can give it back to the society, especially as an immigrant. Um, uh, coming to this country has been has been so good to us, uh, to our family. Um, amazing, amazingly good. Um, and and you have that thing within yourself that if I'm in a position to give back to society, I should and I must. And even if it's a small small percentage of that, right? Um, and that gives you a lot of uh, satisfaction um, to do something to the society. If not in any other way, at least this way, you can contribute to something that the country has given back to me in in the you know uh, since I came to this country, right? I think that feeling is fantastic, and, and that's a great approach. And uh, I'm happy to hear that that you feel that same value towards the country, but also towards. Uh, the future of creating more jobs, more opportunities in the country. This, this is, you know, this is, this is, this is my country. My kid lives here. My wife lives here. They're going to live here, you know, for, for generations. Right. And we have to create um, prosperity for them so that they can live, can be as prosperous as we are, uh, you know? So, uh, and it's not just because of my son. I, that's a metaphor. I mean, to say that everybody who lives in society should be as prosperous as we are, right? We have to contribute to that prosperity. And this is the, I mean, if if there is one thing that has created wealth in a, a, every uh, advanced society is entrepreneurship. Uh, you know, there is nothing else that has created so much wealth as entrepreneurship. And I think we should absolutely, absolutely encourage that. Wholeheartedly agree. 97% of uh, most economies are made up of small enterprise companies and the more help they can get, the better off they are. So as a uh, continued cheerleader of the space, I, uh, I do agree. And I think that uh, I might soundbite what you just said and push that out everywhere because everybody should find a way in any format to give back and help other people get off the ground because in today's world, every little bit helps and it really does create a nice balance for society when people are helping each other. Absolutely. And entrepreneurship is such a difficult job. Uh, it's not a job, though, but I'm just trying to describe it. It's, it's a difficult thing. It's, it's not easy unless you have this passion and focus and that relentless drive. It, it, you can't do entrepreneurship unless you have those things. right? And, and you have to be that positive stuff to help them out out there, right? I agree. I love that. And to, to go on that, now you're working inside of a, a capitalized business. Can you explain and share a little bit more about how the debt side works? Because most investors obviously take an approach by going in in equity. They're doing convertible notes, which is debt. But wait a second, how does that all work? Because I think that's what people are looking for is they're thinking to myself, hey, I'm going to go, I want a piece of your company. I'm going to give you some cash. You're going to give me some common shares, some equity. But then there's this whole debt side. Yeah. So maybe we can start with just the most basic format of it. You guys are doing a, a specific format of debt. Maybe share a little bit about that and we can kind of patch the story together to give people a better idea of what types of opportunities are out there. Yeah. So, so let me first say that if you're an entrepreneur and if you are in a highly risky business, and I always start extremely highly risky business, equity is your best option. All right. Always. All right. Uh, Highly risky business. That's that's something that I underline, right? Because when my wife started started her business, I lent it, I lent her fifteen thousand dollar in debt, right? And but you know that's a business we knew that had a, had a certain horizon for cash flow, and therefore it could be 
it could be the paid back kind of thing, right? So uh, the debt market is, as you know, is is probably probably 10 to 15 times larger than equity market worldwide, right? Uh, it's one of, and it's most, it's one of the most creative, diversified market that there is, right? Uh, but it serves, it, 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 and the, the variety of debt that is available in the market is, is just huge, right? You could have debt that just finances uh, your shop floor, your merchandising, right? Your, your purchase orders, your account receivables, there's a whole variety. And what we focus on as a company, R&D Capital, is one very specific, which is shred tax credit financing, or you can say tax credit financing. Uh, as you know, R&D tax credits um, in Canada is probably one of the best program that there is in so far as, uh, as uh, incentives for startup is concerned. Right? For every dollar, at least in the province of Ontario, you get 55 cents back on an average, give and take here and there. In, in Quebec, it's much higher. And what it does is that it does take time to get that money back, right? I'll put it very simply. It does take time to get that money back from the government, right? So if you have invested 100, if you're supposed to get $100,000 back from the government, it's going to take six to eight months, maybe in a year to get the money back. We'll give you the money now, right? away, And take the money back when it comes back to back, back, uh, back from the government, right? So what it actually does is that for an organization that's growing very fast, they require cash all the time. Instead of it being frozen on their balance sheet for the next eight, 10 months, we'll give the money right now. You can use that for a variety of purpose. You can use it for patent filing. You can use it for sales and marketing. You can use it for setting an set up an office or expansion in the US, China, what have you, right? So there's a whole lot of variety of use for that that you can use strategically and tactically. There are folks when the shred uh, credit is very very high, use it for buying some small companies. So you can also use it for acquisition. Small equity hires, right? Kind of thing. The two person shop, three person shops, uh, you can have. So that's what we do. It's a time arbitrage of a tax credit. That's about it. Right? Um, but it serves a very important purpose. Um, today, uh, if you look at the shred tax credit, it's a $4 billion line item on a, a, line item on a federal budget. Right? And um, I may be off here, but something like, I think 20, 25% of that amount is refundable tax credit, which means that you actually get a check back from the government. So there are two types of tax credits. One is refundable, other is non-refundable. Non-refundable is adjusted with your future tax liability. Okay, um, as you start making money, uh, that's when your tax liability goes down. The one that we are concerned about is refundable, where, where, where you actually get a check back from the government, right? And uh, and it's it's around it's around it's around a billion dollar, right? So and imagine a billion dollar being delayed by six to eight months. That creates a huge opportunity for people to use that money and put that into 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 different. Uh, for different uses, right? So, so yeah, that's what we do. And um, 
And is and it yeah. a payment, all one-time payment at the end? So you get to use the capital right away. You give them the full 100,000 and then in eight months, they pay you yeah. the full 100,000 with a percentage of interest? Yeah, uh, exactly. So 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 you get the money, uh, $100,000, and then, uh, then at the end of six, seven, eight months, we get the check back and we are just the interest and everything else. The cool part of what we do, uh, Jeff, out here is that not only we give shred credit based on what they have already expended, we can also look forward and say, what's going to be your projection for the next year? And we'll give you a percentage of that too. So for example, last year you spent $100,000. You had $100,000 shred tax credit. Next year is going to be $100,000. We can combine that too right? And give you that extra working capital to work on, right? Up to a maximum of 150%. So what it does is that it gives you a whole bunch of capital, uh, which you can then invest into R&D, whatever you want, right? And, and that can be a good working capital strategy. And now the companies that you guys are tending to put this capital into by tax credits, what are the types of companies that you look for? Are they service-based companies? Are they CPG companies or product companies? Are they software companies? Or are they all of them? All of them. And it's funny. So you have high-tech companies that are doing quantum computing that we just financed. We just financed a company that does uh, chip design. Very innovative. Uh, Series B is at $100 million. Very innovative. Uh, you could you could design chip sitting anywhere in the world, chip design. On the other hand, I have financed bakers that are developing new varieties of cakes. And that is also shred eligible in certain cases. So it's agnostic. As long as you meet the criteria for shred, SRED, we will finance you. And the best part of what we do is that the financing is very easy, no personal guarantees, and we can turn around this financing within seven to 15 days. So that's what makes it very attractive. Instead of raising $100,000 or $200, $300 going to wherever they want to go to and raise it, which is going to take some time, you could raise this amount very quickly, get this money, and then go on with your uh, raising whatever you want to raising from the banks, from uh, your CDs, C plus, whatever, what have you, right? So it's a very, it's a very easy way to get that money quickly and put it into action. I like that. That's uh, it sounds like a, a very exciting opportunity and model to get into and work with lots of great companies. Absolutely. And that gives us, so on the other side, it gives us, exposure to a whole lot of companies um, uh, coast to coast. Uh, and that gives you a very good overview of what's happening uh, within the space. Uh, uh, and that makes, and again, it, it, it just connects back to angel investing so well. You come to know exactly what's happening, which space is uh, getting funded, which space is not getting funded, what's the long-term view, what's not the long-term view, and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's fun. It's fun. I love it. Now, can we share a little bit about just briefly um, some statistics around the debt financing side and the success rate or the default rates 
just to give us an idea of the safety measures that are taken in order to make these, you guys do 250 a year. Does that mean that 249 and a half are successful in work? Or does that number drop by 10%? Where does that average industry average? Because I think I read that you guys do a lot better than the industry average, which means you take all these experiences you guys have had, compile them into a nice um, uh, matrix that then lets you decide which companies work best and boom, you go at it. So where does the, those numbers sit? Yeah, so so that's, uh, you know, you typically budget for 5% in okay. your, in your, in your, in your uh, PNL, uh, but uh, but we have been pretty good in terms of uh, working with companies and ensure, making sure that uh, risks are mitigated on both sides, right? So we have seen um, rates as low as one percent on a practical basis on our side, and sometimes it goes up a little bit. Uh, uh, sometimes it's not a function of how, however you try to mitigate the risk if the CRA comes back heavily on that particular client for whatever reason, right? I'm not saying CR is wrong here or whatever. Uh, you can't do much about it, right? So so that that has to be factored in, but um, it could range anywhere from 1% to 5%, depending on the year, the circumstances, the client. Uh, but we have been lucky in terms of making sure that ours is, uh, I don't know the exact number what it is, but uh, it seems that we, we we do much better than industry average. 5% is the industry average. I love it. Can you give us five things that really you look for when defining out a company to make a debt investment into? Well, I think, it, it, first of all, I think <laughs> that's a good question. And that might get me into an hour of talking about that. I think uh, uh, should have a sustainable cash flow, right? Um, so, uh, that, that is an important thing. Second, I think it should have, uh, good management. Uh, that is critical. Uh, third is that, uh, uh, you look at the history and make sure that, you know, they say that, uh, leopard, uh, rarely ever change the spots. Okay. So, uh, so you have to look at what were the spots in the in the past, and you know that the spots are going to remain the same. So you got to make sure that you know what the spots are, right? So that is that. Um, yeah, you got to look at the what is the growth rate within the within that firm, right? Uh, and how is that growth rate being managed? And one of the things that we look and I look is the structure of the company. How is the company structured? And I, especially I, place a lot of importance on having a CFO within the company. If there is a CFO in the company, uh, the instances of default rate statistically and related to, I don't know about others, but for us has been low. Well, so so there are two things. So so another thing is that if they have a board member, uh, uh, operating board, right, and a CFO, uh, you you are uh, your default rate will sort of go down a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, you understand. You can understand. You can make it why why that would be the case because uh, there is an oversight from the board side, right? 
More governance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, obviously, assuming that the board itself is is not <laughs> out to lunch kind of thing, right? Uh, so you have a, go- a board, a good governance, and then have a CFO who has, who has, a, who has a knowledge of the numbers and who's feeding that numbers to the CEO so that he or she can take or that person can actually take better decisions, right? I love it. No, that's awesome. Well, I think we've uh, we've got a good understanding of how the debt vehicles and the process works and the success rates and how you guys uh, go and approach this. Is there a minimum and a maximum that you have or you work with when it comes to debt on tax credits? Like, is it a minimum fifty thousand and the maximum is two million, or can the maximum go higher? And yeah, we we work from seventy five thousand dollars to a couple of million dollars. Uh, the the two million dollars mark, high water mark, is a is a natural high water mark for the simple reason that beyond that, any shred becomes non refundable, which means that you actually don't get a check; it gets adjusted in your future tax liability, right? So that's a natural. So from seventy five thousand dollars to a couple of million dollars is what we can do. Uh, but in certain cases, when we had companies that had one and a half of a million last year, and then they're projected for one and a half million next year, we would combine that and make that as package for $3 million. So we have gone beyond $2 million, but that those instances are very, very rare. Most of the time is between, between those numbers. I love it. All right, we're going to kind of shift now a little bit into a question that I have for you, which is in the last eight years that you've been working the debt side and investing in early stage companies. Have you come across any story that really stands out to you that just wowed you that you couldn't believe this entrepreneur really crushed it, that she or he was able to like overcome all these barriers. You guys gave them money and they just took off like a rocket ship. Any real cool story that you can share with us? That, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. So, uh, so as you know, uh, uh, when it comes to entrepreneurship, it's never a linear line. You know, you get money, you just fly off, you crush all the time. And, you know, that only you come to know when the company is successful that, you know, that people are crushing it. <laughs> but it's a hard, it's a hard route, right? And it's it's not linear. It's ups and downs, a lot of stuff. So we had this company out of Winnipeg that, uh, uh, that you know, it, it was a bold concept that they were doing. Um, and they had a lot of struggles in the first year. We financed a small portion that went to pay their payroll just in time. Um, second year, very, very grueling. Again, uh, we just provided the money in the nick of time so that he can do the payroll, and he did it. And, and you know, okay, good, right? Uh, now we are in 2020. Uh, sales are less than a million dollars struggling, cost high, development cost high. Uh, bottom line looks very, very bad moving into that. So he comes again and say, listen, uh, we need this money, can you? And I, we look at all the criteria and said, based on the criteria, we cannot, right? Uh, but then we had a discussion very, you know, listen, this is what the path looks like. This is what, how it looks like. This is what technology we are adding. And this is the interest and all this kind of stuff. And I said, let's, and we had this internal discussion and we said, let's take a bet on this guy, right? How much you're going to lose? How much you're going to win? And you do that asymmetric analysis and, and, and come to a conclusion, it's worth taking that bet. And we gave him 
uh, a certain amount of money uh, that added to the working capital. Uh, this is around February, March, uh, and then comes pandemic. And uh, so everybody at that point in time didn't know what to do, right? And the entrepreneur was pretty smart. Uh, and uh, and take, he took that money from us. He got money from other institutions, a little bit of money here and there, uh, got around a couple of million dollars together. And then... Uh, through his contacts and through his technology and through uh, the kind of people that he had hired, he moved that company from a million dollar to $16 million by the end of the year, right? 16, I, when I saw his, he said, we, we require them to report uh, every six months kind of thing. And when he sent me the report, I said, his name is Jeff. Uh, Jeff, uh, there is an error on the, I think there's an error. Should be 1.6. No, no, no. It's 16 million dollars, right? So, uh, so, and then at the end of the year, he came back and said, "Listen," uh, and he told me that, "Listen, without your help, this wouldn't have been possible." That small working capital, maybe it was around 300, 400 thousand dollars of working capital that give, helped him to buy stocks during the pandemic times. And that he rotated the stock so fast, right? Uh, that his company took off from a million dollars to 16 by the end of 2020. And they are now on to $40 million by the end of this year. And I think uh, I think I, I, I won't be surprised if these guys go an IPO in a short period of time, right? Amazing. So uh, so this is a fantastic story where a small help from our side. Uh, and and with this person's grit, vision, understanding, and taking advantage of the opportunity, converted that a million dollar into 16 to 40, and now most probably a company that will go, uh, will IPO or will have some kind of big exit, right? So, and this guy, I remember, he used to, he used to present to the VCs and everything. He was turned on like there is no tomorrow, right? Uh, and not that the VCs were wrong or, or, you know, there, there has to be mad. But what I'm saying is that it's, it's um, you, have to st- you have to have that grit and you have to have that vision and you have to have that ability to street smart to take, up, uh, take, uh, take um, advantage of the opportunities out there and also uh, uh, ensure that, uh, also make sure that every kind of capital should be part of your capital stack, right? Not saying, hey, I only want equity, I only want this, or I only want that, right? So, so you should be smart enough to understand what kind of capital should be in your, in your capital stack so that you can take advantage of that at the right moment. I love it. That, yeah, so that, that's something that stands out in terms of um, uh, a company that, that was struggling along became a rocket ship. No, I love that. Have a vision, have some... Have uh, some strong hustle behind you and know how to take an opportunity and move it forward. Yeah, absolutely. Great story. Great story. All right. We're now going to transition into the rapid fire questions, which are going to be business and then personal. Oh, my God. All right. (laughs) Here we go. Favorite part of investing. Favorite part of investing is seeing uh, is basically contributing to society, 
that is a big part for me. I like it. Number of companies you invest in per year? Uh, I invest through, uh, invest through um, syndicate. Uh, so, so I can't really say uh, how much I personally invested, but a personal investor, right? But uh, I should say at least four companies a year. Perfect. Preferred terms? Um, common class A shares. Okay. Everybody's the same. Very true. Uh, any verticals of focus? Uh, right now, space, DeFi, and uh, space and DeFi and, and quantum computing. Love it. All right. Now, these are the real rapid fire questions. Okay. Choices. Founder or co-founder? Founder. Unicorn or four-year 10, 10 times exit? Four, uh, four times the other one that you said. Four times 10 exit. You're a true CPA. Take the money. The unicorns <laughs> are damn unicorns. I like that. Tech or CPG? Tech. Brand or tech? Brand or tech? Tech. AI or blockchain? AI. First time founder or two times, two, three times founder? Two, three, two, three times founder. First money in or series A? First money in. Angel or VC? Angel. Board seat or observer? Board seat. Safe or convertible note? Safe. Lead or follow? Lead. Equity or interest payments? Equity. Uh, coming from a debt, uh, you know, where my day job is debt, equity. Yes. <laughs> well, we have, there's a mix, right? You kind of do two things in the same space. So uh, we're trying our best here to balance it out. All right. We're shifting more into the personal space now. Book or movie? Book. Superman or Batman? <sighs> That's a hard choice. Uh, Superman. Pizza pop or ice cream bar? Pizza pop. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Five minutes with Bezos. Arsenal or Man U? Uh, I'm not a football fan. Uh, you can take Arsenal. Done. Good choice. My favorite team, so I had to put it in there. Uh, <laughs> bike or rollerblades? Bike. Big Mac or Chicken McNuggets? Big Mac. Trophy or money? Money. Beer or wine? Beer. Alarm clock or mobile phone? <sighs> what a choice. Alarm clock. <laughs> Let's, let me be boring. <laughs> Hotel or hostel? Hostel. All right, I love it. These are fun. I keep changing them up, but uh, I find them more interesting and uh, way some people answer them. I can overanalyze you now after, but this is good. Uh, you're not boring. You're past the boring line, so that's good. That's good. All right, final three questions. What is your favorite sports team? Uh, I'm not a sports fan. You, you'll come to know that, right? So, uh, Raptors. Well, they're a good team. They yeah. were not last year, but the year before that, they were the best. So, all right, it's a good choice. Favorite movie, and what character would you play in the movie? I'm not a movie buff, man. Uh, I gotta pass this. <laughs> how about 
I'll give you some hints because we've yeah. heard so many of them. I've heard lots of them. So they're the ones that were most common are, and people have picked off the wall stuff that I've never heard. And it's mm-hmm. amazing, but I've got a lot of great movie selections, but things from, uh, uh, let me see here. Star Trek, Shawshank Redemption, um, Star Wars, Matrix. I'm not a movie fan. I can tell you that. All right. All right, we'll let that happen. Yep. You're not letting you're not allowing me to profile you. So this is not helping me. All right. Last question. What is your favorite super or what is your superpower? What's my superpower? Um I think to uh, to to help others without expecting anything in return. Zero. Right? I think that's my superpower. Uh I I you know, uh I love helping people wherever I can, um, you know, whether it's jobs, whether it's uh, finding a friend, finding a company, uh, getting access to capital uh, without anything, anything in return. So that's what I love to do. Well, I love it. So, Nikhil, thank you very much for your time today. You did a fantastic job. We learned a lot. I took lots of notes. And the way we like to end our show is we like to give you the last word, which is anything you want to say to investors or to startups. The floor is yours. But thank you again for all your time today. Yeah. So to all the investors, I mean, investors and investing community, I think uh, I think it's uh, I think we are at a unique inflection point in Canada. I think uh, we should believe and trust in Canadian companies uh, and uh, and 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 invest wholeheartedly in supporting our entrepreneurs so that they uh, go on to become world-class companies. Uh, that's, uh, you know, and invest, that's like investing in the prosperity of our country, Canada, right? I mean, uh, that's uh, that's what I would, li- I would like, to, uh, like to say. All right, that was fantastic. Nikhil, being able to share all of that great insight because really at the end of the day, when we do a lot of equity investments, we don't get into the debt side. And he shared a lot of great insights uh, around, uh, obviously, the size of markets and what they do. Uh, and just the fact that there's $4 billion a year that's going into the debt side of it. Absolutely incredible. Uh, and he shared his, his five things that they look for. And I love them. They're all great. Sustainable cash flow, good management, history on their financials uh, and business, growth rate management, structure of the um, of the company, do they have a CFO, operating board? All of those things make a big deal when you're making a debt investment, and it's the same thing when it comes to equity. But there's a lot more scrutiny on the the, the debt side because they are working to get paid back. So uh, a great uh, understanding of that, and and it was really great to learn a little bit more about Mikal as well. So uh, you know they fit in that one to five percent on the default side, uh, which is a pretty great standard and uh, certainly helps drive a business forward. So. Very impressive and learned a lot. So at the end of the day, it was, uh, you know, the environment's changing, like he said, and it's great about giving back. And that's what I loved about uh, what Mikael was saying. It's all about being social and communal and, and giving back to the, uh, the industry. So thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to our YouTube channel or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit opn.ninja. Thank you very much. And have a fantastic day.